This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 855 AM, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening, good evening. It's a cool day in Melbourne tonight and thank you for joining us. We're finally approaching something like a a real autumn weather. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions Show. That was doing time that you were listening to with a very frightening piece on the LRAD, that sonic weaponry which uh, police forces around the Western world are now using against their citizens at rallies, apparently, including uh, our own police in, I believe it's Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria. Victoria all already own one of these sonic weapons uh, called the LRAD. But uh, ne- so take a pair of earmuffs the next time you uh, attend a climate change rally, I think. But tonight we've got the whole show taken up by a very eminent uh, climate changeologist, Bill McKibben from the organisation 350.org. Bill McKibben was speaking at the Paddington Town Hall not so long ago, and as there's a very comprehensive introduction to this audio piece. I think we'll go straight to the piece and enjoy this very eminent speaker, Bill McKibben. Now, it's my great pleasure to introduce Bill McKibben. Bill is the co-founder of 350.org Globally. He is also an author who's written some fantastic books. Probably many of you have read The End of Nature, but there are many, many others, some of which are my uh, real stalwart books that I go to when I need a little inspiration about why we keep doing this work. Bill is a tireless campaigner on climate change. He travels the world, he speaks, he challenges authorities, he challenges the fossil fuel industry. He gets arrested in front of his own Exxon station as a single man with a sign to say Exxon knew. He's an inspiration to me, but I think to many people around the world. And I think tonight he's going to tell us some true facts about sort of where we are on climate, but hopefully give us a bit of inspiration to keep going. So I welcome to the stage 350's Bill McKibben. Thank you. Thank you so much. There is no finer climate campaigner on earth than Blair and her amazing crew here in Australia. Thank you guys so much. Um, It's a great pleasure for me to be here. Probably a greater pleasure for me than for you. Um, I've had a beautiful day. It was a gorgeous day. I got to swim in the beach at 
Bondi, and I got to meet with the remarkable students at University of New South Wales who have been doing remarkable stuff about divestment, and I got to meet with the remarkable engineers there who have helped pioneer the solar panel on this planet, and it was all, and I, you know, it couldn't have been a more beautiful day, and it's days like that when I'm forced to confront the fact that my um, basic job on the planet is just to bum people out. Okay. And so I apologize for that in advance, and I'll try to get through it, Blair, as quickly as I can. Um, but there's no getting around it. Um, there's no getting around the fact that we hold this meeting tonight in the very dark shadow of what's happened on the Great Barrier Reef in the last three weeks. Um, this is one of the most distinctive natural features on the planet that we were born on to. Uh, the biggest assemblage of coral on Earth, you can see it from outer space, and in the course of ten days, half of it, maybe more, mortally wounded. Um, it's almost impossible to take that in, that something that, that every human who's lived in this part of the world for thousands and thousands and thousands of years has successfully shared the planet with the Great Barrier Reef until us. And we've managed to break it in no time at all. When I wrote the first book about climate change, The End of Nature, 28 years ago now, we knew there'd be a problem coming. We knew that as we were burning coal and gas and oil and putting carbon and methane into the atmosphere that we were trapping heat, we knew it would heat up the planet. The only things we didn't know then were how fast it was going to happen and how hard it was going to pinch. And the story of the last 25 years is it happened faster and it pinched harder than we ever would have thought. If you told scientists 25 years ago that we would have lost most of the summer sea ice in the Arctic by this point, they would have said, no, that's 75 or 100 years still to come. It'll take a while. If you told them that the ocean was going to be 30% more acidic, they would have said, no, that can't happen on that scale that fast. If you'd said we would have triggered by this point a kind of relentless cycle of drought and flood as we change the operations of the Earth's hydrological cycle, they would have said that too will take some time, but it hasn't taken hardly any time. In the course of the lifetime of everyone in this room, we've left behind the Holocene. We left behind the 10,000-year period of benign climatic stability that coincided, but not coincidentally, with the rise of human civilization. Okay. Um, that's the most important thing that happened in the lifetime of everybody in this room. And the tragic part is we've barely begun this journey into this hot new future. Uh, we've raised the temperature of the Earth so far a little more than a degree Celsius, but on current trajectory, we're looking at three and a half or four degrees Celsius before the century is out. It's galloping now 
2014 was the hottest year we ever measured on this planet until 2015 broke that record, didn't break it, obliterated it. Uh, the world last year was a full tenth of a degree warmer than we've ever measured before. If you want to understand the scale of this, think about how much energy it would take to heat a system the size of our Earth a tenth of a degree in the course of just 12 months. And now 2016 has obliterated the record set in 2015. March, we learned yesterday, was the warmest month the most anomalous month we've ever recorded on this planet. Uh, 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 breaking the record set in February, breaking the record set in January, breaking the record set in December, and so on. In Paris in December, the world's nations agreed that they would try to limit temperature increases on this planet to 1.5 degrees Celsius. We broke through that barrier in February. Okay. Um, we'll go back now a little bit, a tenth or so of a degree for a little while as this El Nino fades and the La Nina comes on. But this is the new world and it really only goes up from here. And as it goes up, the effects on people get more and more intense, especially, of course, the people who have done the least to cause the problem that we're in. Already we see tremendous suffering in every corner of the planet. Um, you all looked at those pictures of people streaming out of Syria uh, over the last year or two and um, into Europe and into any place they could go. Now, there are many causes for that chaos in the Middle East, not the least of them the ill-advised decision of my government to go into Iraq and destabilize things, but there's now an enormous amount of academic research to demonstrate that probably the most fundamental part of what was happening was the deepest drought in the history of what we used to call the Fertile Crescent. A million farmers over the course of two years left their farms in Syria and moved into the cities in a country whose infrastructure, governmental and otherwise, was ill-equipped to cope with that kind of influx. And now we start to see the results. Time magazine last fall in a big story ran a headline over pictures of sort of huddled, miserable immigrants, and it said, are these climate refugees? They are to one degree or another, and they are harbingers of what we can expect to see as this century wears on in ways that we've never seen before because now everything is in motion. The, the world's agronomists tell us that from this point on, each degree increase in global average temperature should cut grain yields about 10%. If we raise the temperature two or three more degrees and we have 20 or 30 percent fewer calories on this planet, y'all are capable of doing the mental math to kind of figure out what that means for development, for war and peace, for hunger, for public health, for women's rights, for all the things that we theoretically care about but that we are not going to have on a destabilizing, degrading planet. This is... By far the biggest thing that human beings have ever done, and we have to stop it happening. There's nothing that's ever been a bigger, more immediate, more pressing challenge, and we have to rise to it. So that's the worst of it. Okay? There is good news. And the good news is we know now what we need to do to cope with this.
this problem. We didn't 25 years ago when I was first writing about it. Um, back then, you know, solar energy was still in its infancy. People were working on it in the lab at New South Wales, but they hadn't, they, nobody else had really figured out yet how to commercialize it on a scale that mattered. They have now. The price of a solar panel has fallen 80% in the last 10 years. That's one of the most significant single facts on our planet because it allows us to think about what we might do. And if we look at the few places that have actually tried to take advantage of these changes, we see what kind of power um, we could be tapping. Probably the one big country on earth that's really made an effort is Germany, which is ironic. They caused more than their share of problems in the last century. In this century, they're offering more than their share of solutions. They were the ones who were willing to pay the high price early on for renewable energy, and they adopted it with a vengeance. As of two years ago, there were still more solar panels in Bavaria than there were in the United States. Okay, And, and as a result... There were days last summer when the Germans were generating three-quarters of their power with solar panels inside their borders. In Germany, okay, no one ever went to Germany for a beach vacation, all right? <laughs> Think what you might do in a country like this that is blistered by the sun and washed by the wind each day, you know? Think of the... I mean, I'm, I'm, we're talking about keeping a little bit of fossil fuel on the ground, not digging it up and burning it. Think of the energy we waste every single hour, every single day, by making no effort to trap all that sun and the wind. Denmark last year, the Danes generated 49% of their power from the wind, which either means that the Danes have figured out some way to hog the world's wind supply, or it means that they have the political will to take advantage of the technology now available to all of us to use. Even in the developing world, we see a few places. Bangladesh, where I saw the first solar panel that ever went up in the country 20 years ago, will become the world's first fully solarized nation by 2021, something like that. They're putting up 90,000 solar arrays a month using that financial infrastructure from the... Grameen Bank and the other microcredit structures in order to allow people to, for the first time, have light and power. People who were 200 years of the fossil fuel era did absolutely nothing. Now, for the first time, are turning on the light and the light is coming straight from the sun. So we could do it. And here is the great, the two things that I've told you tonight present the great paradox of our time. We have the most pressing need we've ever had as a planet. And we have a ready set of solutions. Not easy, not simple, but available to fill that most pressing need. So the question becomes, why are we not doing it? For the most part, why are we doing very, very little? Why are we taking baby steps if we take any steps at all? And that's the question that now kind of haunts me. I spent a lot of years getting it wrong. Okay? I wrote, as I say, the first book about all this, and when I wrote it when I was 27 or 28, my, um, my theory of change was 
people will read my book and then they will change. Um, um, they did read it. It came out in 24 languages, you know, but, but that turns out not to be how it works. But still, being a writer and so on, I thought that we were engaged in an argument. And so when you're in an argument, you continue to pile up more data and write more books and more articles and hold more symposiums and have more talks. And eventually you win the argument and then your leaders go to work and do what needs to be done. And we wasted a number of years doing that because it turned out that we were not in an argument at all. We'd won the argument by the mid-1990s. Science was crystal clear on what was going on. We were not in an argument. We were in a fight. And the fight, as fights always are, was about money and power. And there was another side to this fight, and it was the richest industry on Earth, and that industry was willing to break the planet if it meant it could keep doing what it was doing for another few years. That sounds hyperbolic and extreme. Um, in the States in September, great reporters at the LA Times, at the Columbia Journalism School, at other places, started publishing a series of remarkable documents, far more important in the end even than the remarkable documents we've seen come out of Panama and places in the last little while, okay? Um, because what these documents demonstrated was that the most powerful and richest fossil fuel company of them all, Exxon, had known everything there was to know about climate change as early as the late 1970s. If you think about it, it makes sense. They made their living off the carbon molecule. They had some of the best scientists on Earth, so they were determined to understand it and understand it they did. They, by the early 1980s, had told their senior executives when the planet was going to warm and how much, and they were spot on. And their executives took them seriously. They started figuring out how to bid for leases in the parts of the Arctic they knew would soon melt. They started climate-proofing all of their drilling rigs, adjusting them to make sure that they could accommodate the sea level rise that they knew was coming. Okay? The only thing they didn't do was tell any of the rest of us. Instead, they and their brethren in the industry spent tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars building the architecture of deceit and denial and disinformation that kept us from doing anything about this problem for a very long time. Had they merely told the truth when the first scientist got up in Congress and said, this is a serious problem, had Exxon merely said, you know what, our scientists telling us the same thing, well, that would have been the end of the debate. No one would have said, Exxon is a climate alarmist. We would have said, this is a big problem. We need to get to work. We wouldn't have solved it by now, but we'd be well on the way. Instead, we've engaged in a completely useless, faux, pretend, phony debate for a quarter century, and it may have been the quarter century that cost us the time we needed to grapple with this problem. It is the greatest corporate scandal there ever was. So if you want to know why politicians should stop taking money from the fossil fuel industry, why this pollution-free politics thing that that Blair and others are working so hard on is important. That's one big reason why, okay? 
Well, if it's the greatest corporate scandal in the last 25 years, this uh, faux argument, as Bill McKibben puts it, in relation to whether or not climate change, anthro- uh, man-made uh, climate change is real or not, if it is indeed uh, the biggest scandal in the last 25 years, it's the biggest scandal in human history of uh, corporate duplicity and greed. But as I just mentioned, that's Bill McKibben at the Paddington Town Hall in Sydney in April this year. Bill McKibben is, of course, uh, a representative and I believe co-founder of the imminent climate change organisation 350.org and you are on 3CR. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Get lost in science. into 3CR every week to hear Beth, Chris and Stuart discuss news and issues from the universe that is science. Get informed and learn a bit more about the world around you. Lost in Science can be heard every Thursday at 8.30 in the morning and is repeated the following Tuesday at 6am. Word to the nerd. You can also download a podcast. Go to the website at www.3cr.org.au and get lost in science. And get lost in the Beyond Zero community show. There's uh, ourselves. We play every Monday on a Monday night at 5pm. And our sister show, as I like to fondly call it, on Friday mornings at 8.30am. And it's that time of the year, folks, that time of the year where we need your support. And to show your support, we'd like you to manifest it in cash, cold, hard cash, to keep 3CR radio station running and to show that you think that uh, the Beyond Zero the mission show is a viable and important show. Uh, even when you do donate to the Radiothon this year, if you could mention our name, it would be greatly appreciated by Vivian, myself and the BZE team. Now we'll go back to Bill McKibben uh, talking to a packed out audience at the Paddington Town Hall in Sydney in April this year. Once it finally penetrated my thick skull that this was a fight and not an argument, the next question was how we were going to wage that fight because we clearly were never going to have the money to match. Exxon alone made more money last year than any company in the history of money. Okay, So, uh, you know, we weren't going to match that. We were going to have to find a different currency to work in. And it was going to have to be the currency of movements, passion, creativity, spirit. Sometimes we'd have to spend our bodies and go to jail. And so we set out trying to build that movement, which didn't exist 10 years ago because everybody was still hoping that we were in an argument, you know. Um, I had no idea how to build a movement, and I still don't. I'm a writer by trade, and um, hence an introvert, okay? Um, uh, This is not my, you can tell I'm not a very good public speaker, and this is not my... Uh, I mean, it's very good to be here with you all, but I'd rather be in my room typing, you know. Um, 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 But we set forth, and when I say we, I mean myself and seven undergraduates at the small college in rural Vermont where I teach a little bit, a place called Middlebury College. 
And it was a ludicrous proposition that we would organize the world around climate change. But we happily were, didn't understand quite how ludicrous it was, and so we set out to do it. There were seven undergraduates. There are seven continents. Each one took one. Um, um, the guy that took the Antarctic also had to take the Internet. Okay, so... We set to work, and our work was to find other people like ourselves around the world. Now, some places that was relatively easy, and Australia was probably the best example because there were people like the Australia Youth Climate Coalition that had been doing great work already, and they were sort of natural, easy allies, and it was great fun to go to work with them. Most of the world, there's not always someone who calls themselves an environmentalist, but there's always someone everywhere worried about public health, about women's rights, about development, about the things we can't have in a broken world. And so they were the natural allies, and we asked everybody if they would just come together to, um, to join in. We had no money, we had no organization, but we picked a date. We uh, said in the fall of 2009, I said, everybody do something on this same weekend, okay? And we had no idea really what would happen, how it would go. We got the first sense it might kind of work two days early. We were sitting around our one-room office, our one table with all of us with our laptops open doing press releases and things. The phone rang, and it was our leader in Ethiopia who, like all of us, was a volunteer, like most of us was a she, like a... Surprising number of us was 17 years old, and she was in tears. And she said, the government took away our permit for the weekend, so we're doing it today before they can stop us, which was brave, but that wasn't why she was crying. She just kept saying, we wanted to do this the same day as everybody else. We wanted to be part of the whole big thing. We don't want to spoil it for everybody. We wanted to be part with everybody else. We're really, really, really sorry, and we have 15,000 kids out in the street right now chanting 350s. So, so we were, you know, I said, Luau, don't worry about the date, it's okay. Um, and it was okay. It was the beginning of what turned into 72 hours of just remarkable drama. Uh, before it was done, there had been 5,200 demonstrations in 181 countries around the world. So CNN called it the most widespread day of political activity in the planet's history. The very, almost the first picture that came in next because of the way the international dateline works came from Sydney and the Australia Youth Climate Coalition out on the... And there are, I know, people in this room who are in that picture. And thank you guys so much. I'm going to just show a few of these mostly because I want you guys to see who your brothers and sisters in this work are. One of the things I had heard all my life was that environmentalism was something that rich white people did, and if you didn't know where your next meal was coming from, you wouldn't be an environmentalist, and so on and so forth. It took 10 minutes of watching these pictures flow in from around the world, sometimes 20, 30 a minute, to see that that was nonsense, that virtually everyone we were working with around the world, all the leaders in this fight, were poor and black and brown and Asian and young, because that's what most of the world consists of. And oddly enough, they were at least as concerned about the future as anyone else, because the future bears down hard on you in these places. And so there was a great deal of wit demonstrated around the world. Um, 
and a great deal of, well, for the very first time, religious communities deeply involved in this fight. Uh, uh, that's from South Africa. There's the head of Muslim South Africa next to him, the kind of leader of indigenous traditions behind them, the Anglican Archbishop of South Africa at the head of a huge multi-faith march. Um, um, that's the, in the U.S., the biggest evangelical college, uh, Billy Graham's alma mater. I'd been to the Middle East to do some organizing. People wanted to do something. It's a little hard for you to see in the back because that's a small image, but people wanted to do something because the Dead Sea is shrinking rapidly as temperatures rise. Too many military checkpoints in the way, so the Jordanians said, well, we'll make the big three on our beach. The Palestinians said, we'll do the five on our shore. The Israelis took care of the zero. It was a gorgeous day. 300 demonstrations across China. Hard place to do this. A couple of them broken up by the police. But you know, China is emerging as one of the really important parts of the problem, but also the answer to the problem. They're now installing renewable energy at a clip that we've never seen before any place in the world, and it's powerful to watch it happen. Those are our brothers and sisters in the Maldives. That's the student... Government Association of the Maldives, they're holding their meeting in the lagoon to demonstrate, of course, the existential problem that affects them and that affects so many across the Pacific. People have lived there for 5,000 years. Their odds of making it through this century are questionable. Uh, the highest point in that paradise in the Maldives is two meters above sea level, which is a hell of a bad place to be on a rapidly warming planet. But they are fighting and fighting hard. This was the biggest story on Google News for about 36 hours, and I think the reason was that people did not look the way that editors thought environmentalists were supposed to look like. So there's Yemen, which is as tough a place as there is on the planet. All the women in that circle are in full black burqa, you know, so to us, they don't look like the kind of chapter meeting of the wilderness society or something. <laughs> but their hearts are in precisely the same place. They are not thinking about themselves. They're thinking about the future, about the rest of creation. It was glorious to see. Um, there were even three or four hundred pictures that ended up in a file marked 350 adorable. Okay? And they were adorable. And they were hard to look at also. Those girls are probably going to be refugees at some point in their lives. And not because of anything we, that they did, but because of what we did, you know. So we've gone on to do this kind of work as fast and as hard as we can around the world. And because of people like Blair and Charlie and all the other people in this room, we've managed to do, we think, about 20,000 of these rallies and demonstrations in every corner of the planet except North Korea. Um, and they've been beautiful, and we've loved every minute of it, and it's the kind of work that we would like to just keep on doing um, because it takes us to every corner of the world, and people are so remarkable in their commitment, and artists, too. We did one day a project they called the biggest art project in the history of the planet, and these things that were so big we needed satellites to capture the images because they were made up of tens of thousands of people. That one was my favorite. Um, I don't know if you can really see it, but it's these dry riverbeds in the American Southwest, these arroyos that these droughts have now just turned into dust. And when the satellite came over, two or 3,000 people just flipped blue blankets up overhead to kind of bring the river back to life for a moment. 
kind of in the same way that we're going to have to use our imaginations now to bring things like the Great Barrier Reef back to vivid life, you know, because they're not there anymore, at least in the same way that they were before. As I say, that's the kind of work that we love to do. And had we 50 years to solve this problem, it's the kind of work we would keep doing. Because human beings change best if they change somewhat gradually and evolutionarily. That's the inexpensive, non-traumatic, kind of cultural, generational way to change, you know, and we could do that. Our problem is we don't have 50 years. We had to start 25 years ago and we didn't, so we're now miles behind. And that's why, well, that's why we've, again, sort of despite sort of how, despite my kind of personality, despite personality like Blair, we've, we've moved increasingly from education, or at least to supplement education with confrontation. And we've had to, because we have to slow down this fossil fuel machine very, very fast. We have to bring it to check so that it doesn't keep expanding, so that we have a moment, a pause, where the solar engineers can catch up, where we can begin to replace. And it's incredibly hard because of the momentum and the power. That's why this break-free event that's coming up in May is so crucial and why we need you to sign up with the people who will be here tonight. Okay? We started in the States with this fight over this thing called the Keystone Pipeline, okay? which was this pipeline down out of the tar sands of Canada into the Gulf of Mexico. And the Canadians were defending the tar sands with just the same fervor that your politicians have been defending uh, some of these crazy schemes for big coal mines. I've got to say, forgive me for my rudeness as a guest here, okay? But it is appalling, appalling to see the same day that the scientists are saying what's happening in the Great Barrier Reef, to see the government of Queensland announce approval for the Carmichael mine. It is appalling. It is appalling to see, to see that, that man, Greg Hunt, who I saw in Paris, going on and on and on about his great deep personal commitment to all of this and how this was the most pressing personal thing he could ever imagine and so on and so forth and yet sign off on a plan like that. You don't get to do both these things. And so we had to try and stop this Keystone Pipeline even though everybody told us there was no chance. In North America, the oil industry had never been beaten in anything like this. Um, um, no one had even heard of this pipeline when we started. But Jim Hansen at NASA, our greatest climatologist, put out a little paper saying, if you took all the economically recoverable oil out of the tar sands in Canada and burned it, the atmosphere would go from its current 400 parts per million CO2 to 540 parts per million just from Alberta alone. Okay? And you can do the same calculations for places like the Galilee Valley. Okay? Um, um, there's carbon that has to stay underground. So we set out to work. I wrote the letter saying, come to Washington, get arrested. We had no idea what would happen again. But people showed up in their numbers, and it turned into the biggest civil disobedience action about anything in 30 years in the United States. And by the time it was done, um, people were, there was a kind of movement underway, and it started spreading around the world, you know, and, and, and back to Washington. And within a couple of months, we'd surrounded the White House with 
50,000 people shoulder to shoulder, five deep around the mile and a half perimeter of the White House. And what do you know, it took about three months, but Barack Obama said, well, maybe we should consider this thing some more. Maybe we should wait until after the next election. Okay, and, and so that was good. That's what we want. And, and we kept up the pressure as one must, and as you guys are used to from the amazing fights here, um, and, and we wrote more emails to the Senate than they'd ever gotten on a single day and filed more public comments than there'd ever been about any infrastructure project in American history. And finally, a few months ago, Barack Obama said, okay, we're not going to build this thing. And that was good. It kept 800,000 barrels of oil of the dirtiest oil on earth in the ground every day. But the real value of the fight was that it convinced tons of other people that they could stand up to the fossil fuel industry too and soon there were fights absolutely everywhere. The head of the American Natural Gas Association gave a talk last year at an industry conference and he said to his colleagues, we somehow have to figure out a way to stop the keystoneization of every project that we have. I gotta say it made my black heart happy to hear that particular so now everywhere, everywhere, I mean, we've watched with such admiration what's gone on in Australia as people have locked the gate, as people have figured out how to make sure that that Adani mine never got the financing it would require, as people have done thing after thing after thing. You guys are great leaders, and all over the planet, the same thing. Um, 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 in the States, we've managed now to stop fracking in New York State and in other places and that spread to Scotland and, uh, and Wales and, and France and much of the rest of the world. It's now uh, uh, an ongoing fight. Um, 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 last summer, Shell Oil had big plans to go drill for oil in the Arctic. Be the first ones into the Arctic. Open up the newly melted. Think about that for a minute, okay? They watched the Arctic melt as we raised the temperature, and instead of saying, perhaps this is a signal that we should back off, having lost the single biggest physical feature almost on Earth, instead they said, whoa, this make it easier to drill for more of this stuff, okay? So when they took their giant drill rigs out to drill, people showed up by their hundreds and thousands in small craft in Seattle Harbor and Portland Harbor and kept those drill rigs there for a long time. They called them kayaktivists and it was a beautiful moment. And, 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 and what do you know, a couple of months later, Shell announced that they weren't going to drill for oil in the Arctic after all. Okay? They said officially that they hadn't found enough oil to make it worth their while, but as we've now learned from leak after leak inside the company, what they really found was way more trouble than they bargained for. Okay? Here's the thing. Often, and it sort of comes as a surprise to me, but it's worth thinking about all the time. Often, not always, but often, when we fight, we win. So we might as well fight, and fight hard, and on as many fronts as it's possible to fight. There's now a big, beautiful, sprawling... There's a big, beautiful, sprawling fossil fuel resistance on this planet, okay? It's not a some organization at the head of it. It does not how it works. It's not... There is no Dr. King, you know, of climate change movement. No great 
persona. Um, maybe if we had one, that'd be good. But since we don't, I think it's really much better because now we have every place in the world people standing up to the fossil fuel industry, which itself is sprawling, you know, and, and standing up. And when we need to, we can come together to act in coordination, as we will next month in these break-free actions. At the head of this fight always are people in the frontline communities most affected by this. And at the head, the last three or four years, and it's been maybe the most important thing that's happened in place after place, at the head suddenly have been indigenous communities all over the planet. And that leadership has been absolutely vital and powerful and it's one of the things that gives me enormous hope going forward that we may well that we'll get somewhere you're listening to 3cr radio and you're listening to bill mckibben from the organization 350.org at the paddington town hall in april this year for the final part stay tuned so uh, you know, uh, I could show you slides all day. This, these are from an event we did where we called Connect the Dots, and we just went to all the places in the world that were already feeling the effects of climate change, some more serious than others, but every place. I mean, that's the um, Siberia. We're now getting forest fires routinely, three, four, five degrees of latitude north of where they've ever been observed before, you know, because it's so hot and so dry. The Arctic was 18 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than normal this winter for about six weeks, a stretch like nothing we've ever observed at the poles. Um, people having, obviously, to leave their homes. That's in Micronesia. That top red balloon is where the Dead Sea was 40 years ago. Um, um, these folks are in the zone in Pakistan that in 2010 saw the greatest flood since Noah. Uh, it rained so hard up in the Khyber Pass, the rain of a kind you can only have in a world where you've raised the air temperature and hence increased its ability to hold water, more water vapor. When it came down, by the time the flood reached the, the delta of the Indus there, 25% of the country was underwater. Okay, 20 million people had to leave their homes. What's the population of Australia? The population of Australia had to leave their homes, okay? Look at them, and you will see that they probably did not do much to cause the problem from which they are suffering, all right? Uh, again, I could show these pictures forever, and, and they carry a, you know, they just carry a, it's almost hard for me always to look at them over and over again. There's one from Haiti, and I, you probably can't read this, in fact, the reason that it's stuck in my mind is not because it was a big demonstration. It wasn't. It's just the signs that these two kids were holding. Your actions affect me. Entirely true. More people died from Hurricane Sandy in Haiti than in New York. Okay? Still a cholera outbreak kind of trickling on there in the wake of all that. Your actions affect me, but not vice versa. There's nothing anyone in Haiti can do to change the outcome here. They can't burn less fossil fuel because they're not burning any now. They don't, can't get to, you know, Washington or Canberra or something to, uh, you know, make their voices heard at capitals that can make a huge difference. 
you add up every endowment and portfolio in Haiti, and it's probably less than what they have invested at the University of New South Wales that the kids there are trying so hard to get divested. By the way, such thanks to everybody who's worked on that divestment campaign. And, um, and this, this week in particular... This week in particular, also just kind of bear in mind the students at Melbourne uh, and at the University of Queensland, okay, who are taking big risks and doing big things and good on them. Um, So we've got these movements going, and it's beautiful to see, and there's a resistance everywhere now. And uh, these are pictures from, we finally called everybody, at least on North America, together for one big march, okay? Um, and that was about a year ago, and 400,000 people showed up in New York. We'd expected 100,000, so we had a certain amount of logistical difficulty, but it's the kind you like to have. And, and it was the biggest march about anything in the U.S. in a very long time, and it was heard, you know. One of the reasons that the Paris Climate Conference worked at least a little bit, and the, as opposed to the Copenhagen one six years before, which had been an utter failure and an utter fiasco, was that world leaders now faced a movement capable of holding them accountable. Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton came back from Copenhagen, and there was not a peep about their failure. They paid no price, but they could not have done that from Paris. It would have been a disgrace, and so at least they got, at least they got some rhetorical work done in Paris. And though their plans are not particularly strong, that rhetorical commitment to a world that will only warm 1.5 degrees is important because now every time that they propose some new coal mine or frack well or whatever it is, then every time they say, we're going to go explore for oil off the great Australian bite, you just say, what are you saying? You told us that you only want temperature to rise 1.5 degrees. You can't do that if... That's the kind of world you imagine, okay? Um, That movement's been really powerful, I think, and useful, and I'm so grateful to you all for being engaged in it. But I want to end by showing the pictures that came from virtually the same day, and they're always the pictures I end with, because to me they're the most beautiful pictures I've ever seen from this whole movement. You know, those nations out in the Pacific, your near neighbors, Tonga and Vanuatu and Tuvalu and the Marshalls and so on and so forth, the nations that may not be there before this century is out, okay, um, um, nations that have been here much longer than Europeans have been in Australia, um, 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 the people on those nations are incredibly powerful and beautiful organizers. And their slogan that they've been organizing under is, we are not drowning, we are fighting. Okay? And so that same time that we were all gathered in New York, they cut trees on those various islands and built traditional canoes. And with the cooperation of all kinds of people in this room, they made sure that they got those canoes to Newcastle. And they used them for a memorable day to blockade the biggest ore ships in the world, to keep them in harbor, kind of like people are going to try to do in a few weeks on May 7th, Blair, is that right? May 7th, okay. Mother's Day, 
made, made. Those pictures, to me, tell the story in all its detail. They're all you need to see. This is an epic battle, and it is a battle between the few and the big and the small and the many. Okay? And the only way the small and the many will triumph is if we're all in the many, if we gather in our numbers to make it happen. And I'm, well, you know, Blair talked about the fact that we're now at a point where it's time for people to take some, to get outside their comfort zone a little bit, whatever it is, all right? I've been thinking about that a lot this week. I got to spend four days in Tasmania, um, and I got to spend most of them with Bob Brown, who I'd never met before, but I got to say was perhaps the single most decent politician I'd ever come across in, in my life. One of the great pleasures was being up in a helicopter with him going down the valley of the Franklin River um, with the guy who had gone to jail to save it, okay, along with a lot of other people. And again, to kind of realize that sometimes when we fight, we win, but even if we don't know we're going to win, we need to fight. I wrote, I was thinking when we were talking a lot, he was asking about the Keystone fight because it had become the greatest iconic environmental battle in North America in decades. And I was remembering writing the letter that asked people to come um, to Washington to get arrested, which was a tough kind of letter to write. Okay. <laughs> And one of the things I said in it, and I can tell you this because I'm looking at the great demographic, the sort of age, the wonderful range of ages here tonight. One of the things I said in that letter was, I did not think that young people should have to be the cannon fodder for this. Okay? Young people have done most of the leading in this movement uh, around the world. And they are you know, the young people at 350 Australia, led by my old wonderful colleague Charlie Wood or just, you know, fantastic examples. Young people have done most of the leading. But if you're yeah, 22, it's possible that an arrest record is not the single best thing for your resume, okay? One of the few unmixed blessings of growing older is past a certain point, what the hell are they going to do to you? You know? And so it was good to see... It was good to see a number of people with hairlines more or less like mine arriving in um, Washington to get arrested. We didn't ask people, how old are you? That would be rude. But we did cleverly, I think, say, who was president when you were born? And the two biggest cohorts were from the FDR and the Truman administrations. On the last day, there was a guy arrested who was so old, he had a sign around his neck that said, World War II vet, handle with care. He'd been born during the Warren Harding administration, which was so long ago, I actually had forgotten there was a Warren Harding administration. Okay, so that was good. What it was really good was that the young people who were there got to see their elders acting the way that elders need to act in a working 
civilization. Okay? Um, the other thing that was about that letter that I was remembering and telling him about, and he was laughing at, was that um, we'd said, if you want to come get arrested, put on a necktie or wear a dress, okay? Not because, I mean, I, I live in Vermont in the United States, which you all are now learning about because of my old friend and, and uh, great mate, Bernie Sanders. Um, 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 but... And Vermont is a very informal place. You can go a very long time. Bernie's almost the only guy in the state who wears a necktie, okay? But um, um, we wanted this because what we wanted to illustrate was the thing that I've been trying to say sort of inarticulately all night, the most important thing, which is that there is nothing radical about what we're asking for. This is the farthest thing from radical, Okay. Um, we want a world that looks a little bit like the Holocene, the world that all humans of whom we have any historical record, written down record, lived in. Okay, The world that we've moved out of. But we want to stay as close to it as is possible. We'd like a world that maybe had an ice cap or two. We might even like a world with a little bit of coral left in it. Okay, that's not a radical demand. That's a conservative demand. Okay, radicals work at oil companies and coal companies. If you are willing, if you are willing to make your great fortune by getting up in the morning and changing the chemical composition of the atmosphere, after scientists have told you what will happen if you do after you've watched it begin to happen, if you are willing to still, if you're willing after watching the Great Barrier Reef die, to stand up the next day and say, let's build a huge new coal mine, then you are a radical on a scale we have not encountered on this planet before, and it is our job, the job of the rest of us, to exercise the common sense necessary to check that radicalism before it wrecks every last beautiful sweet thing on this earth. Now, if I, was, if I was a good organizer, I'd just stop there. Go on. But I'm not actually a very good organizer. I'm a writer by trade, and so my job is to be relatively honest, okay? And the honest truth is, there's absolutely no guarantee we're going to win this fight. The momentum of climate change is pretty darn strong, and I feel it this week more than I've almost ever felt it before. Okay, um, We're pretty far behind. The best science indicates that we have a narrow window left in order to keep things from getting absolutely, completely out of control, but if we do, it is a narrow window, and it is closing fast. So I cannot guarantee you that we're going to win. It's not like other fights we have. You know, Dr. King, my great hero, always ended his speeches by quoting from the abolitionist Theodore Parker. He would say, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. This may take a while, but we're going to win. Okay? 
The arc of the physical universe is short, and it bends toward heat. And if we do not win soon, we do not win. So that's why the urgency is so deep, okay? That's why people are doing things that no one should have to do. You know, it makes no sense that we have to go to jail simply to get people to pay attention to chemistry and physics, but we do. I cannot guarantee you're going to win, but I can guarantee you, and I think it's important and valuable and powerful thing, I can guarantee you, and you can attest to it because you've seen pictures, some of them, I can guarantee you that there's going to be a fight that there is a fight underway, that it is the great fight of our time. And I can guarantee you that tonight, as if every night now, there are rooms like this in 50 or 100 or 500 places around the globe where people are laying their plans and figuring out what can be done. And it is always such an honor to be in those rooms. And it is such an honor to be in this room tonight with such great fighters to say thank you for what you've done and thank you for what you will do and that I just look forward to standing shoulder to shoulder with you in it all. Thank you all very much. And that was Bill McKibben talking at Paddington Town Hall a couple of months ago with, a, for me, a very strong message of if we fight, we win, or if we fight, we may win, but if we don't fight, we can't win, so we all need to fight. We've got a um, our newest member of the Beyond Zero Emissions team in the studio with me tonight. He is an actual sound engineer. Yeehaw! But uh, that brings a bit of professionalism to our sound, uh, to our small show. But Andy, you've been trawling some websites. Yeah, uh, if our listeners would like to check out more, you could go to uh, 350.org. Mm-hmm. That's pollution-free politics to find out where your MP stands. And there's voteclimate.net.au, a network linking community groups working on solutions to the climate crisis. And you can uh, find out how you can take action there by either house signage or letterboxing. That's right. And the point is to do something. That's right, yeah. Keeping in mind if we don't fight, we don't win. So let's all have a bit of a fight. Yeah. Okay, so that again, uh, as usual, we're running out of time. I need to thank the team who you know who you are, but thanks to Vivian for bringing us this excellent sound. Andy, our sound engineer, uh, Jody on, on marketing, Teddy on promo, Rogers for podcasts. You're all fabulous. We love you all and we love our listeners. So see you next week.